Welcome to the official BART podcast, Hidden Tracks, Stories from BART. I'm Chris Filippi, your host for this episode, and I'm joined by John Allen, who is a transit vehicle mechanic at BART's Hayward Maintenance Complex. John is BART's answer to MacGyver. In his time at BART, he's become an expert at keeping some of the oldest trains in the entire fleet in operation. We'll learn how he and his fellow mechanics use creativity, reverse engineering, and anything they can lay their hands on on the internet to keep these trains moving. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I think your job title of transit vehicle mechanic doesn't really go far enough in describing the work that you do and what your colleagues do. You literally keep 50-year-old trains up and running that cannot be a simple task. No, it's not. Um, most people don't realize it, that uh, the original um, legacy fleet, what's referred to as the A car, the slanted nose car, and the car that follows behind that uh, is original. They date back to 1969 is, is where some of the data plates are actually on the cars. So people don't realize that. They went through a rehab process in the mid-90s and overhauled. Uh, they got rid of a lot of the undercar equipment and went to, uh, you know, from DC motors and older air conditioning units to more modern, a DOS system on the, on the computer control, and all that went in in the, in the mid-90s, what we refer to as uh, a rehab. And we in the shop refer to that as A2B2. So <laughs> yeah, that's on right, the legacy folks. fleet. Uh, DOS comes into play in yes. keeping these trains running, yes. and we'll get to that. I, it's got to be a lot more than simply putting a train car on a lift and looking under the cabin at this point. With 50-year-old trains, the first challenge, I would think, is sometimes just finding the parts because they're not produced anymore. No, they're not. We have searched the Internet. We have called around the world. We have made parts inside the shop. We have taken literally pictures of things and reversed engineer it with our engineering team to get these pieces to get them back on the trains uh, we've mixed things we've gone out to the aviation industry and looked at different things that they had we uh, perfect examples we were looking for a um, a breaker for our uh, legacy fleet that hadn't been produced in 25 years and we found one that was close we got it uh, we got some pieces out of the aviation world and we, uh, we did some machining on these breakers to put into our auxiliary power supply equipment underneath the car to get the cars back repaired to keep them on the tracks to, uh, to haul our patrons around. So yeah, it's a, it's a full-time job um, keeping them up and going. I'm chuckling over your breaker story because it's not like the part just went out a few months ago and oh darn, we just missed it. No, it, it hasn't been made in 25 years. It hasn't been made in 25 years and then a lot of the things that we get there's a six to eight month lead time on a short end of things. So we have to constantly look way into the future to keep parts rolling in. And that's a lot of the, 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 the components that are underneath the, uh, the car. Sometimes like um, on the legacy fleet, we were able to buy the APSI, the auxiliary power supply equipment. We bought, I think 70 of them. And we adapted those newer um, units to put on our legacy fleet to give us an additional 10 years because our old ones totally were out. We, we could not repair them anymore. They had been repaired too many, uh, too many times. How important is experience and know-how and being able to basically plug and play with all these random parts and, and as you said, even refabricating certain items? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's huge and you have to really think outside the box. Uh, you have to uh, take a lot of pride in your work. We have an excellent engineering team that comes down, and, and they have to do the same thing. They have to think outside the box uh, because we just can't go down and get, you know, store-bought items. People don't understand that our gauge 
Uh, our track gauge is wider than most rail systems and most transient systems. So everything about the cars, from the wheels to the axles, because uh, we have what we refer to as in, inboard bearings versus outboard bearings, uh, is completely different. And um, experience from the, the mechanics and the uh, transit vehicle electrical techs is, uh, is, a, is a key here, as well as our engineering team. Uh, so. You mentioned DOS earlier. I don't think I've thought of DOS since my middle school computer lab. Uh, but how does that come into play in keeping these old trains running? So when the cars went through rehab in the 90s, uh, in the later 90s, that was the system that they put in, and they put in a diagnostic system in using Windows 95, 98, and some of those older older systems. So when the cars went in for rehab, that was an updated system then. That's that's what we, that's what the technology was. And we use that. We can run the air conditioning units. We can run the different power supplies underneath the cars. Our techs do that you know, on a day-to-day -day basis, we can download some things to troubleshoot, you know, what's going on with the car. Of course, now today there's going to be a Windows system in the uh, fleet of the future, but that was the state of the technology, you know, prior to that. So what does that look like? Do you have laptops running on Windows 98 to make this happen? Like, what, what do you do? So, yeah, we plug right into the car. Uh, we have those old Hitachi uh, laptops, <laughs> and we have piles of them, and our engineering team literally get piles and piles of computers, rob pieces to keep old laptops going. And uh, we use those and we plug into the car just like you would um, a modern day system and download the information. Yeah, you talk to your colleagues, I'm sure, at other transit agencies, maybe go to conferences and, and share war stories. D does anybody else do this kind of stuff to keep their trains operating? There's some some pretty old systems I, I know for a fact in Chicago, and I think Washington had some pretty old systems. As I know, um, talking to, um, to some vendors that came out um, from back east uh, a few years ago, they were talking about a, a switch that, that – that we haven't seen since the probably the 50s and they talked about that so there is there is a little bit but i think even they've moved on wow so. so what is the most extreme direction number of steps you've had to go to to get the right part for a job to get a train back in our train car back in operation it would that would go into our accident repair bart when it went into existence had the um, had the thought process they actually bought the molds from the manufacturer, the different manufacturers that manufactured the cars back, you know, Alstom and some of those older manufacturers that, that uh, manufactured these cars originally. So we had some of the molds for like the inner, the, the uh, panels that are inside the car, the door panels and so on. We had some of the molds so we could recreate those, those products. Finding the correct resin that hasn't been used in 50 years, that became a challenge. We actually had to go out to a lab and have it mixed. We've had to, like I said before, search the internet, search the world looking for some of the components. And then when that doesn't work, we just simply build it. We had in a car, 372, was in a fire in Orinda, I believe in 2013. And there was a lot of under car structure pieces that were destroyed, melted. We did not have them. So we literally went to a, um, another legacy car. We measured it out. We took a long look at it. Uh, we did have some drawings, but not all. And uh, we honestly just got the raw material and manufactured it in our own facility in Hayward in our machine shop, fabrication shop, and welded it together. I would think it's always a challenge to find certain pieces, especially when they're outdated, they're not produced anymore. 
Has that become more acute because of the global supply chain challenges that we've been hearing about since the pandemic arrived? Yes, uh, it, it has, especially on the electronic side. But one thing that's working more in a positive way for us is we're phasing out the legacy fleet and phasing in the fleet of the future. So uh, if a car, since we're decommissioning cars right now today, we can take those parts and put them in legacy cars that are running today. So that hasn't been as much, but yes, we have felt the, uh, the effects. Um, things take a lot longer to get, and, and that slows us way down and becomes a challenge. Yeah, certainly a challenge, and the legacy fleet changes a lot for BART, of course. Yes. I, I think it's really interesting, though, that before the fleet of the future, we had the oldest fleet in the nation, yes. uh, and that was for a long time. Yes. And that's one of the reasons you go to these extremes, to keep these train cars in operation. And I think a lot of folks don't realize that even today, there's a real live possibility that they're getting into a train car that has been in operation since 1972. It's had a lot of work done, but it's been in the district since 1969, you mentioned. I mean, at the same year we're launching astronauts to the moon, we're getting train cars that are still being used today. Yes, there's, they've been rehabbed, they've been overhauled. I know going back years ago, we actually sent one of our A-cars out and had it looked at um, by one of the original manufacturers, and they structurally looked at it because a lot of these cars had a time frame. And they looked at it, and they said, okay, there was, there's no structural issues, and bless the car to run another additional you know, 25 years or whatever it is because a lot of those cars are coming to the end of their service life now. What would you say is the greatest challenge? Is it getting those uh, off-the-wall parts that aren't made anymore, or is it something else? The greatest challenge is we can't buy a lot of the tooling that we need, and we can't buy a lot of the parts that we need. So we build it. We make it. And that's where myself and, and, and my team comes into place. Um, that would be the hardest part. Yeah, you always uh, hear the comparison between book smarts and street smarts, and it seems like your job is a lot more about street smarts. Like, you don't learn this stuff in a textbook. You know, you no. got to learn from practical experience how this stuff works. Yes, I'm pretty talented in the art of fabrication, taking raw metal, bending it, welding it together, machining it, and, and getting it um, normalized and back on the car in a safe way. And that takes a lot of years' experience. You know, we did go to welding school. We can read blueprints and so on, but it still takes the art of fabrication, and, and fabrication comes just from doing it. you got to have experience. You know, and it's one of those things. It's tra it's 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 experience. You learn from somebody above you, and, and, and it passes down through the through the years. Yeah, there's a lot of value in that institutional knowledge, isn't there? Because yes. you're handing that down to the younger guys, yes. and then they can bring that to the table themselves. Yes, yes. Speaking with John Allen, a transit vehicle mechanic here at Bart at our Hayward Maintenance uh, Facility. Uh, John, do you ever take a moment to think that again? We have these cars from the '70s, even a little bit before that. These cars have literally covered more than 2 million miles. Do you, do you ever think about like how incredible that is and all the work that's gone into to making that happen? Yeah, it's uh, when you, we, you look at it in miles, we look at it in hours and how many uh, preventive maintenance cycles the cars have come in and how many hours the car has on it, and it's hundreds of thousands of hours. And when you break that down and you see it, uh, it's it's amazing. And then, you know, and I know that, Sometimes in the media, people will go, well, you know, the cars broke down. But when we look at the numbers and we go, well, that car went 100,000 hours and it only, you know, broke down once in between or whatever that is, we have to pat ourselves on the back because 
we we work hard at keeping them going. We really do, and they have to be safe. You know, they can't. We're going, you know, at high rates of speed on aerials underneath the water and whatnot. So that that becomes an, another issue. Absolutely, so. and and you look at these cars, and everybody's looking forward to the fleet of the future. But these legacy cars, they really have held their own, haven't they? I Absolutely. mean, they've been resilient. Yes, uh, I. I personally believe we could re- rehab the fleet if we wanted to. I know they're old, and they would go uh, another 25 years. I, I really believe that because when we look at them, when we look at some of the cars that we have fixed going back 10, 12 years ago, and we look at them today as we decommission them, there's no failures. There's no structural failures. There's no cracks. There's no loose hardware. There's no nothing. So it looks like they could just keep on going. I know we need to replace it. And metal does get fatigued, and people want that new, and I understand that 100%, but I think they would keep going. Yeah, you take a lot of pride in that. And, and you've really been involved in some challenging situations in your time here at Barton. Sometimes you and your colleagues find ways to salvage cars that most would just leave for dead and throw on the scrap heap. And you referenced this earlier. Back in 2013, a BART train car in Orinda actually caught fire, and thankfully nobody was hurt. But it appeared at that time that that train car would be a total loss. But you said no. I said no. I said no from the beginning. Um, management and engineering had talked about scrapping the car. It set for a few years. We desperately needed some cars for uh, the Berryessa line. They were they had broke ground on that. We needed those. We needed to run that car. We needed to run some concesses for testing. So a decision was made to rehab, and there was multiple cars, but that one happened to be the 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 pillar the one that was bad there was 97 feet of floor that was melted out of that car total wow you know that we had to weld it was melted there was pieces that were literally gone we had no idea they were just a pile of molten metal underneath the track when we got to the car in 2013 so we brought that car in and we literally cut the floor completely out we had never done that in our operation here at BART we had never replaced the our flat-nosed cars, what we refer to as the C cars, uh, in the legacy fleet, we had never changed an extruded aluminum floor. We had no idea what we were doing. We had engineers that had been here since the early 70s. We had newer engineers here. We had same thing with transit vehicle mechanics. Nobody had done that. So it was our task. Uh, I was the lead on that job to figure out how to do it. And uh, I worked with an older engineer. And uh, we built some tooling. We cut the floor out. And uh, we made the new pieces to, to go into that floor. And we literally welded on that car for weeks. And fixing the aluminum, uh, there was a, uh, I forget how many hundreds of wires that were melted into. We had a brilliant ET named Larry, an uh, electrical technician uh, named Larry, works out of the Hayward shops. And uh, he, uh, they ring the wires out. And what that kind of means is they take a voltometer and they hook it to the, each end of the uh, line, and they trace each one out and fix it. And he did this to hundreds of wires wow. over the course of several weeks and making long test, leads, test lead wires and whatnot. And he repaired all the, uh, all the wiring in the car. Basically, the car got completely rewired. Um, me and my partner, Steve, we uh, structurally welded the car back together. We literally would have to take turns because we were doing so much upside down aluminum TIG welding on the car, our necks were going out because it was just, you know, 97 feet plus we did three passes. We did a route and what we call two tie-in passes to get the, to get that in. We painted the cab. 
we, uh, we did a floor in the car. We put new seats in it, and every piece of undercar equipment from the uh, truck assemblies, which is the wheels and the electric motors, to the air conditioning, to all the undercar equipment, was all rebuilt by our facility in Hayward and put back underneath the car. What an incredible experience. And I'm proud to say we took the car out, and we do a, um, they call it a, um, a 100-300 test. That just tests the propulsion system. And then we do an automatic train control test on it. Our, our electrical techs do it. And that just verifies that the automatic train control operation works. So we took that car out. We did all these tests. Everything worked. We sent it over to our test track in Hayward. We have a, BART actually has its own t- test track over there. We ran it over there for several weeks. It didn't fail. Then we ran it on the uh, Berryessa line in their testing phase. And it never failed. And then we returned it to service and uh, it ran an additional, I think, seven years. Wow. And we decommissioned the car a few months ago. Going through such an experience like that, were there lessons learned? Absolutely. First off, it, it really tests your ability to fix one. Uh, we did look at the car when we were decommissioning it to see if there was anything that was coming up that was failing. There was nothing. Everything was good. A lot of lessons got learned for building new buildings in the future. Uh, accident repair stuff, things that we would like to incorporate into, you know, a newer facility going forward. Um, we learned that we should maybe not, and, and I had this conversation with uh, one of our um, uh, high, high up managers in RS, Rolling Stocks and Shop, of, hey, let's not, let's not decommission this and take all the parts off of it so early. Let's look at it because we proved that we could fix this. We have the technology, we have the people, we have the staff, we have the tooling, and, and roll with it. So that was a big one. And we also learned that over the years, you know, a lot of people didn't like that style of car, what we refer to in the legacy fleet as the C car. A lot of people didn't like that car. We proved by overhauling the car when it went out and ran that the initial design was really good, and it worked. So... Has there ever been a car that you've not been able to return to service? No. Wow. No. Not once? Not once. (laughs) Been close, but no. Uh, We had a car, I don't know if it was 1604 or 1605. They were actually coupled together, um, oddly enough, in 2011 at a big derail in Concord. I was at the derail. And um, we had a mate... our Richmond crew, accident repair crew, fixed one, and my crew fixed another. And I don't remember the numbers. Um, the one I think we did 1604, and that car was literally visually twisted. When we put it up on stands, we could look down the car and we could see a huge twist in it. We deskinned the car. Um, we had there's a two by four uh, aluminum extrusions that go through the car. We replaced every single one in the car and brought the car back to 100% straight. Wow. returned it to service. It really is a blend of science and art, isn't it? And I would think a team effort, too, because you look at something like that, like you just described, where it's actually twisted, and people are going to have different ideas and perspectives yes. on that. Yeah. Talk, talk about that. So the big thing when you're looking at that is you can't make an evaluation when it's together. You have to take it apart, and you have to see what the real damage is. That's the, the key. Um, so that means that you know, probably a couple hundred hours in work to take everything apart to see if you can even think about fixing it. And we took it apart, and we looked at it, and we found that there was just some items on the car that were cracked, bent, and uh, no longer serviceable. And we really looked at it, and we went, you know, if we replace that structure, the car will come back to square. And we actually 
and people don't realize this, but the back end of a legacy car, where the indoors are, that's all riveted and welded on. We removed that whole end unit. It was crushed. We uh, had another one. We put that into place with the uh, new um, structural pieces, and we riveted that and welded that all together, and the car come back to 100% square. All these experiences you and your colleagues have had, how did that influence the design of the fleet of the future? You know, that's a good question. I know as we've gone forward, um, and when we first got the legacy fleet and BART went into business, they had the foresight of getting a lot of parts and accident repair parts and and, uh, cabs for our legacy fleet and, and different things like that. And uh, so when we went and we started looking at things of the fleet of the future, we started asking ourselves as a team, engineering, management, and, um, you know, my accident repair team, we all met and we said, okay, where is the areas of damage? What happens in a derail? What happens when you hit an object on the tracks? You know, what happens in these different things that we've had over the years? And uh, where do we have access? You know, broken windows, um, the uh, legacy fleet tends to hit some things on the tracks and knocks out the lower right-hand corner. Derails tend to take out air conditioning units and the placement on uh, some of the undercar equipment. So our engineering team went, okay, we need to have better access in these locations, and we need to make sure we have the parts to keep the fleet of the future going for the next 50 years. And uh, we had a lot of input, which was which was great. You know, and we didn't... We didn't um, basically say, well, you're an engineer, you're a mechanic, you're a manager. We took everybody's opinion and everything was wrote down so we could, going forward, everybody's opinion was uh, noted, I guess you would say. And a lot of those changes went into the fleet of the future. How dramatic is the difference working on a legacy train versus working on a fleet of the future car? There's a lot of differences. They look similar, you know, the the exoskeletons, but... uh, all the underneath car equipment is completely different. The couplers the that couple the trains together, the air conditioning units are completely different. Uh, there's nothing that interchanges with them. So it's 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 like learning a, a whole new system, to be honest with you. So except for the width of the axles and the wheels themselves, the wheels and what we refer to as the wheels and the rim, there's really nothing that's the same. The gearbox is similar and everything else is different. Yeah. For the most part. I, I would think with the new trains, you don't have to go on some wild internet search to find a part. No, we have the parts for those. <laughs> yeah. The challenge with that is is we're, we're going into a phase of now we have to build fixtures and workstations to be able to overhaul those units. Um, as I was coming in here, I was answering some emails, uh, work emails related to some coupler stations and things that we were, you know, were in the process of making in the fabrication shop to be able to overhaul those parts because our crews, our transit vehicle mechanics and our transit vehicle electricians are going through factory training, you know, right now at both the, the primary shop and our secondary repair facilities. As you know, we have dozens of cars that have been with us for 50 years, but we're also in the midst of this process where all those cars are eventually going to be phased out. We're getting more fleet of the future cars into BART at this point, and obviously a lot of our riders are very excited about that. But I got to think that you probably are a little bit nostalgic and might miss those old cars. I I do because I got a ton of knowledge on those older cars. Um, I had a tear in my eye when 372 left because that 
car was special to me. That was just a jump in. That was the Arenda car. That was the Arenda car. Sorry. Uh, The Arenda car. When that car left, I was really sad. I was hoping that was going to be the last legacy C car that to leave because uh, we had put so much effort into fixing it. And I was proud of that car because it, uh, it just ran. We had no, uh, we had no trouble with it. I inspected that car for many years after uh, me and, a, and one of our engineers would go down and look at the car, look at all the repair work. So I missed that. And I really wanted that car to stay longer. Definitely. But uh, yeah, it's, it, I really like the legacy fleet. I like that slant nose a car the legacy fleet i like all those looks it's um, just part of it yeah it's so, unique it's that yeah. space age design from when bart was launched yeah. and I, I know a lot of our riders get kind of nostalgic for it yeah. too right um i was upset that the the horns sound different i mean bart has that <laughs> nostalgic horn why couldn't we keep that nostalgic <laughs> beep beep you know but hey i understand and, and this is a huge deal for our riders uh, the work that you and your colleagues do to keep these trains in operation so that we can deliver full service and every train counts Every train car counts when it comes to that. Uh, But along with that work, you've been involved in other initiatives that impact the rider experience. And one of those is the single seat modification. Tell me how you were involved in that. So the single seat mod, obviously the fleet of the future was behind for, for multiple reasons. And we weren't getting the new, the new train cars in ridership at that time. This was uh, back in around 2016. Ridership at that time was, was, had peaked. So we needed to make more room in the car. So our head engineer at the time, um, Ben Holland, and I believe um, the uh, general manager were on a train and they were discussing it and they came up with, well, you know, other agencies have single seats. So it just, it was kind of born on a, literally on a train. That's the story that I was told. Ben, whom I'm good friends with, came back and he, he says, Kay, could you take one of these old seats and just tell me what you think about making it from holding two people to one person, single seat. So I looked at the seat, and it's, it's not as simple as cut it in half. You don't, it doesn't work that way. We actually ended up cutting two-thirds of the seat and then a third and then welding it together. We had to make what we refer to as fish plates and gussets to make it structurally strong and safe for our, our riders. And we, we had no backing. We had no tooling to do this. These had been in jigs. So I made a seat and I put it in a car, and uh, I showed it to, you know, our upper management. They all liked it, so they asked me to do six more, so we did an entire car, and uh, it was kind of funny because we hadn't figured everything out at this point in time, how to fasten things down. It was This was just a static display, so we made one seat that was safe to go in the car, and then we brought down the general manager and um, uh, the assistant general manager and in a lot of upper management, and they actually had me speak about it, and we, t- we talked about it, and uh, so we ended up doing the single seat, and then we did uh, a couple other, you know, grab bars and whatnot, opening up the center of the car, and then we put it out under a um, kind of a, an evaluation process to the prop public. We did 20 of these single seat cars and 20 of these other cars um, that had just grab handles where we removed seats. The public survey came back. They liked the, the single seats. So we looked at we looked at it. We actually built tooling uh, inside our own uh, fabrication shop. Myself and my partner Steve. We made this tooling. We had no idea what we were doing. We took pictures that engineering had, and uh, I had a, I was working with a one of our great principal engineers, Brian Bentley, and he had pictures of the original testing of the seats. 
So we recreated that. That's where that reverse engineering came into play. We saw pictures of it. We made a fixture. We bolted the seats to it, and uh, we used hydraulic presses, and we, we basically bent the seats to see how much deflection was in it. We used the same numbers that they would have used for a double seat for a single seat. So the seats were actually much stronger. We had no failure. Then at that point, we had to train the crews to do this work because this, we're now going to do our entire legacy fleet um, of the B cars and I think one A car. Um, so we, uh, we ended up having to train the crews, running 24 hours a day. Uh, I ended up doing uh, a major portion of the, the welding training to get people up and get things certified so we could uh, get those seats. And it took one year to do the entire fleet. Yeah, and, and that uh, modification is really popular with our riders. It was a huge success. And when people ask me, you know, that's the easy one. I can tell them that, you know, that was one of the ones that I was majorly involved of with because everybody knows that one. You know, anybody that's rode in BART has been on a car with, with single seats. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of people like them for a whole list of reasons. So, yeah. And that's the result of innovation happening in our shops. That's not like something you could just order off the nope. shelf and install it. Every seat was done by a transit vehicle mechanic in the fleet. Every one that was not done by, it was not done, sent out to a vendor. They weren't new seats. The backs on them, the seat cushions, we modified everything. We built tooling and fixtures to be able to cut them. We came up with some different hardware to be able to attach them. That was all literally figured out between um, our engineering staff and our mechanics. That innovation is uh, influencing the fleet of the future, right? Yes. Lessons learned off of that. We, uh, we put engineering, looked at it, and said, okay, we need to be able to change because we've done you know, bike mods and seat mods and different things over the years. So they put tracks in the new cars in the fleet of the future. So we can reconfigure the inside of the car much easier. It can come into a shop, mechanics can go to it and reconfigure it. Uh, we could do a single seat if we, if we wanted to. We could do a double seat. We could remove the seats. We could add more bike space and so on. And that was all lessons learned from the, the single seat mod. So we learned a lot. John, you've been at BART for 16 years. What do you like about this job? Well, it's uh, the, the challenge of it. Um, keeping 50-year-old cars uh, up and running. There has been times when, when we have looked at something and I've literally laid awake at night. I know you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to leave work at home. But I've literally laid it home at night in bed going, how am I going to do that? How am I going to fix that? How are we going to get in there and repair this that we can't get? And uh, then to come in the next day and go, yep, that's how I'm going to do it. And do it and have it run and have it go, not fail, not come back. That's a job satisf satisfaction. So. I would imagine you take a lot of pride in the fact that you have yet to encounter a car that you couldn't get back into circulation. Nope. I'm very proud of that fact. That's a, that's a big staple for us. So, and it's, it, it just shows a team effort, and uh, we take pride in what we do. If there was one thing you would like riders to know about your job, because they don't always think about the stuff behind the scenes and all mm -hmm. the work that goes into keeping these cars in operation, mm -hmm. what would you want them to know about the work that you and your team do? I would want them to know that we're just not a bunch of dumb mechanics. We're actually educated, and uh, we, we take a lot of pride in our work, and um, we're not lazy, and uh, that's, it takes us to keep the fleet going. And if it wasn't for 
what we do, and that goes throughout the system, there wouldn't be a ridership. They wouldn't have us. And I, I feel like one of the things I've learned from talking with you is that there really is a lot of creativity happening in these shops. You know, it's not all just plug and play. You guys have really got to figure things out. We do. Yeah. And uh, that's the one thing that we do. I, I don't know if other transit agencies um, in railroads do this, but we listen to our patrons when, when you know, they have a survey. We listen to what they're doing and we try to in- implement those things. And we listen to you know, the car cleaners and the mechanics and the, and the, the uh, electrical techs, management, engineers, and so on. We listen to everybody, and we try to bring that to the table and, and come up with a creative effort because there's a lot of times that uh, I had a car cleaner come to me once, and he says, you know, if we just had this bar shaped like this, we could do X, Y, and Z. We made him that bar, and then we made it out of aluminum to make it lighter for his fellow employees, things of that nature, and that's the... the kind of the cool thing, you know, going forward. And some of the things that we would do in the shops would get out to the train operators and and so on. There's been a lot of little things over the years like that. John Allen, a transit vehicle mechanic with BART, thank you so much for all the work you and your colleagues do and, of course, for joining us here on Hidden Tracks. Uh, Thank you. It was a pleasure and an honor. And thank you for listening to Hidden Tracks, stories from BART. You can listen to our podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and, of course, at our website, bart.gov slash podcasts. 